The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to turn to God's Word. If you have a Bible, open to Matthew chapter 12. We've been looking at, uh, we've been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew. And we are in this section of the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, we're in the section of the Gospel of Matthew and, uh, that we're kind of entitling Good Authority. Right, from chapter 11 to chapter 16, basically, we are looking at the good authority of Jesus. Uh, we have just looked at what it means to be a disciple, and now we're looking at this question of what does it mean to live in his kingdom. And so what we're going to do, like we've been doing, is we'll read this passage as we, as we work through it, and I'm going to pray for us, for God to help us as we look at God's word together. Uh, Father, as we look at what it means for Jesus to have authority... And for it to be good authority, we ask that you would hard, you would change our hard hearts, and that you would uh, submit us to who Jesus is. Um, you would help us, Father, because we need your help. And we often all try to uh, trust in our own authorities, and so we ask that you would help us to trust in His. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When we, when we bring up the topic of authority, um, authority tends to be one of those things that's, uh, because we're Americans, right? We have the Bill of Rights, and we, we have, uh, you know, our country has started from a fist fight, right? Like, we don't come from some long line of kings and all that. Like, we're started by, uh, by throwing off the man. And um, all those blasted redcoats, if you remember, <laughs> we, uh, we have connotations and ways that we hear the word authority. Right? Some of us uh, come from homes where either we didn't have a father or our fathers were abrasive or abusive. And so we think of that when we think about authority. Or some of us had really bad company experiences where the, the boss is maybe good and so we like them. Or we don't have a good boss. And so we think about authority as like we have like these connotations. Right? We don't have like an overt one-to-one when Jesus says, I have authority um, and we make make it seem like Jesus is these bad authorities, but we have these connotations that come to mind. We have these kind of inner subtle narratives of how we think about authority. And that's kind of uh, what's going on in this passage effectively is uh, Jesus' authority is becoming clearer and more pronounced and more uh, demanding of who we are, right? He says, you need to trust in me. You need to trust in my good authority. And what's going on in this passage is now all these subtle ways that we think about authority are coming in conflict with who Jesus is and what he says about himself. Uh, so, let's see, we throw this next slide. We, you have, through this passage, you have these, these clear markers of Jesus' authority, right? Where he says, verse 8, uh, for the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath, right? The Sabbath for the Jewish people and for, uh, throughout the Bible is a mark of what it means to be God's people. We take a day off and we trust that God's going to take care of us. And Jesus says, I'm in charge of that, right? I'm in charge of that day off. Um, verse 15, uh, Jesus is aware of their plots to kill him, right? Verse 14, the authorities are starting to get really fed up with Jesus, and he's aware, right? It's not just kind of like political savvy. There's a, there's a connotation of his divine power, right? We see that more clearly in verse 25. He knows their thoughts. Uh, I might be a good pastor, but I don't know your thoughts. <laughs> I can't read your minds. Jesus can read our minds. He looks at what's going on, and he says, I know what's going on in the inner hearts. And then verse 41 and 20, uh, verse 41 and 42, someone greater than Jonah the prophet is here in Jesus, and then somebody greater than Solomon. 
So all of this, he, Jesus is again turning back to the, the whole Bible and saying everything that reveals God's character, everything that applies, so reveals God's character in the Sabbath, everything that re, uh, applies God's character through the prophets, and everything that helps us with God's character for wisdom of life in Solomon, Jesus is, is better and he has, a, he has that type of authority. So we're dealing with a chapter where Jesus' authority is clearly on display and making a claim upon us. But I don't know about you, but with those connotations of authority, we can kind of look at those questions and think, okay, is, that, is it going to be good for me? Is it going to be helpful? Right? One of the main questions of this passage is, right, is this authority good for me? Uh, can we throw that next slide? Uh, see, main question is, is this authority going to be good for me? That is, can I flourish in the family of God? that Jesus is inviting me into? That, that's the main question going on here. And what we're engaging with as we're going through this passage is we're going to be looking at uh, three claims of authority that are contrary to Jesus, three types of authority that we submit to that are contrary to Jesus' authority. And then we're going to look at the back end of this passage where Jesus invites us into his family, and we're going to see a totally different type of authority than what Jesus has. So we're going to pick up in verse 1, and we're going to read through 14, and we're going to be looking at when we submitting, that we are submitting at times to oppressive authority. What does it look like to submit to oppressive authority? All right, so if you have your Bible, we'll look at verse 1 to 14. At this time, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look at your disciples. Your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, have you not read that, that David, when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, uh, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests, right? So he's saying, look, when David, there's a story about David being hungry. And when they're walking through, they went into the temple. They're like, look, we're hungry. This is the only food. And they ate the bread. It was in the temple. Or have you not read that in the law, how the Sabbath on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless. So basically saying like, look, when in the Old Testament, the priests, they aren't supposed to be doing work either. And yet they're in the, the, the temple doing work. And God says, they're not sinning. So clearly there's, there's a dynamic going on that Jesus is pulling out about the nature of the Sabbath that these Pharisees have totally missed, right? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Let's pause there and just kind of consider what Jesus is kind of laying out, right? So the Sabbath is established in the, in the Genesis account, in Genesis 2, where, he, where God creates everything, and on the seventh day, actually what's interesting is about the Sabbath is that God creates everything, and on the seventh day, he doesn't finish it. All the other days of the Genesis account say it was morning and evening, it was the fir- or evening it was morning, it was the first day, or it was that day. On the seventh day, it's left incomplete. God still has some rest to invite his people into. And then in Exodus 20, he lays out the Sabbath as an ongoing dynamic of what it means to rest in our God. And he says, this is going to be a part of what it means to be my people. And then what happened by the time of the Pharisees, they had said, okay, this is so important. It's a part of God's design and creation. And then it's a part of God's intention for his people that we're going to do, what we're going to do is we're going to create a fence around that law. It's called the, it's literally called the fence of, of the tradition around the, around the commandment. So you have the principle of the commandment 
a day off of rest in who God is and his provision for you. And then they said, okay, that's really important. So we're going we're gonna to provide practices to make sure that we submit to that principle. That's what was happening at the time. And actually, you can actually go back and look this up where they had 39 provisions about ways, uh, uh, 39 dynamics of how to uh, obey the Sabbath, the things that you weren't allowed to do. So they weren't just kind of like, don't put your socks on, don't carry your keys. They were actually like categories, like you can't pick things up, uh, you can't <laughs> carry things. And then they'll have like all these little dynamics of rules underneath that, of what that means. So like if it was, you can't pick anything up, they would have, that's one principle of the 39, and then they would have all these rules underneath that. So it's not just 39, it's like a lot. They, they had said, this is what you're allowed to do and not allowed to do, primarily emphasizing what you're not allowed to do on the Sabbath. And Jesus saying, look, you, you realize that the Sabbath wasn't invented for you to have to all, have all these do's and don'ts, primarily the don'ts. The Sabbath was intended for you to rest in who God is. Like, that's the point of the Sabbath, right? And it, if you think it's kind of like, oh, there's kind of like this thing, it actually still goes on. In, in Orthodox Jewish communities, they have what's called, sorry, I had to make, make sure I get the, the word right. It's called the Erov, and this is a part of the Orthodox Jewish community where what is it's a string that they will extend out of their house, um, and they will make a, a boundary with this. Uh, it's a, it's a one-quarter-inch string, and the string um, made of pure wool will be extended throughout their neighborhood to extend the, the barriers of their house, right? Because the, the premise is uh, you, can, you can only carry things a certain amount. And, and we're, when we're talking about carry things like kids, keys, laundry, like I'm not talking about like, you know, like doing your deadlifts, right? <laughs> I'm not talking about doing your workout. I'm talking about like basic things. And so they'll put the string and it goes around their community and says basically this extends the doorpost of our house. And so now we're, we're still in our private space when we go out into these public spaces. And so you can go on Google. Let's throw this slide up. You can go on Google, and they actually have, like, all these, like, different... This is the Erov in Boston, right? This, the blue line goes all around this area. So if you're an Orthodox Jew in this community, you can go out, and this is still a permissible place for you to go out and work effectively on the Sabbath. And we kind of look at... I mean, it's incredible to kind of think about, wow, this still goes on, right? And it's just to kind of give you a dynamic, right... This is, this is their note on that. One needs to exercise caution when walking on Shabbat along any of the streets above due to the fact that the Erov may allow the sidewalk or roadway along that street to be in or out of the Erov, even along the same street. So the point being, right, you have to be sure, are you working on the left side of the street or the right side of the street? Because the left side could be in and that right side could be out. And you've got to be careful if you're in or out. Anyone walking along the borders of the on Sabbath needs to be completely familiar with the exact location of the Erov boundary in these locations, right? It's, it's actually cost, it's, I was reading about it this week. I kind of got like consumed with spending like an hour reading about this. For the, it's actually cost about, uh, I, I want to say it was about $40,000 to, to put up and then maintain this boundary. Um, and that's kind of what's going on. In the, so I bring it all, just kind of bring us back <laughs> to our passage. That's kind of what's going on in this passage where you see the principle is Take a day off and rest in who God is. But what they, they did at the time, and before we start saying, oh, look at those silly people, you have to remember, what they're trying to do is they're saying, no, obeying God and living in God's command is really important and really serious. So let's be serious about it. And so then they go to the next step of creating this boundary or the provision of the, of the practice of, okay, well, that means that you can't pick up any heads of grain 
You can't have any snacks when you're walking around. Um, it becomes oppressive, right? Because what happens is it's all these little rules that you... Have you ever had this happen where you're like, either like it's your work culture where you realize like, oh, I didn't, you do something and then someone is like, hey, hey, just so you know, like we don't do that here. Like you didn't know, <laughs> like you kind of bump up against this unspoken rule. That's kind of what they're, it's like these unspoken rules that all kind of are a part of what it means to be on the inside, right? That's the intention of what they're trying to do. Is they hold it important. And we kind of have... Um, just to be honest, the Christian communities tend to be very similar. It's, it, this isn't just kind of like those Old Testament guys um, and those weird guys uh, with their shoes laced up too tight uh, with Jesus. Um, we do the same thing. I remember one time coaching a worship team, um, and the, this woman that I was talking with, I was like, hey, like, you're like a foot away from the microphone. Um, they can't pick you up. <laughs> like, they can't hear your voice in the microphone, like you need to get closer to the microphone. She was like, well, I was always told that if you get too close to the microphone, you could uh, breathe too heavily into it and that might be a temptation for somebody. Like, Wait, so you're saying if you breathe into the microphone, that heavy breath is gonna somehow be a temptation for somebody thinking that you're breathing right into their ear through the sound system, right? And it's like, well, yeah, I honor the idea that like, look, like, People want to walk in purity, and they want to walk in integrity, but it was like this unspoken rule of like, you don't, you see, it's like a little ridiculous, but we, we do this with other things, right? We can talk about modesty, like what does it mean to be modest? What, is, what does it mean to be in a dating relationship? Do we do dating or courting? Parents involved, not involved, right? We talk about parenting. What does it mean to be parenting? What, do you, how do you discipline your children? How do you not discipline your children? What sort of parameters or boundaries do you set for your children? What about food and alcohol, right? These are all these dynamics that God lays out principles for us, right? But he doesn't tell us the details of everything of what we need to do, and we, we try to fill in the gap. Um, and when we fill in the gap, we go from the principle of what God's laying out for us, and then we attach the practices that we develop, and they become attached to this, right? This is just a, something that we need to be aware of. Just so you know, whenever somebody comes to me with a question of like, hey, what do you think about this issue? Ephesians 4 says that my job is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So I, I go, what's the principle? What's the explicit command of Scripture? And then how do we work for wisdom in a practice? Because what we don't want to do is we don't want to be doing what these Pharisees are doing and become oppressive with our practices and say, this is the way. If you're going to be a Christian, you only do it this way. Right? That's, you guys getting what I'm saying? This is, this is how, this is how we, we, we fight against this oppressive dynamic because... Ultimately, this oppressive dynamic, it's subtle, right? Remember, their intention is to be serious about their obedience to God. We want to be serious about our obedience to God. But we don't want to be oppressive. We, because ultimately, we make that, that practice more important than the principle. And what Jesus is saying, the principle reflects my character. The principle reflects my heart. The practice, you've got to be careful. Is the practice replacing Jesus in priority? Right, so we pick up in verse 9 here, even under this dynamic of submitting to oppressive authority. He went on from there, he was still on the Sabbath, and entered their synagogue. And a man was there who had a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? <laughs> so that they might accuse him. And he said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. 
And the Pharisees went out and considered against and conspired against him how to destroy him. You see, here their their oppressive authority even went to the extent of saying, don't help a guy in need on the Sabbath because you're working. They were still taking that principle of don't work on the Sabbath and taking it to the extreme of saying, don't even do good things on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, is it better to do good on the Sabbath? Like the intent of the Sabbath was was for our good, right? It's for our, our soul's health, but it also isn't to stifle us from doing good. Right, the, the, the oppressive authority of the Pharisees is stifling because it's oppressive. Right, their application of Scripture ultimately becomes oppressive when the don'ts become bigger than the do's. Right? You don't do good. You don't do these things. That's becoming oppressive. Right? It breeds fear and suspicion because you never know fully what the rules are and you don't know when you've broken them. So when the man stretches out his hand and Jesus heals him, Jesus is doing good and he's setting us an example and saying, I want to bless. The purpose of my commands isn't to stifle or to oppress, but they're for our good, for our flourishing, for our health. The way to check our own hearts on this is to ask, are we more aware of, are we more critical or more grateful for what God is doing in those around us? Right, because what was happening is they were saying, uh, don't do these things, don't break these laws, don't, uh, don't, don't, don't. And then when their response to Jesus isn't to say, look at what Jesus has done in healing these people. Look at how wise he is in helping us understand God's word. No, they're more aware of how he's broken the taboos and broken the don'ts. We tend towards the same thing, right? Jesus sets out, verse 7, if you have known what it means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice you would not have condemned the guiltless, right? Are we more aware of of the don'ts that people are breaking? Are we more aware of the do's that they are commending, right? As a parent, like one of the things that I want my children to know is I don't want them to hear no from me (laughs) as much as they hear yes from me. Now, I'm not saying like yes to all the cookies and the sugar and the, the, the movies and the... But I, want them, I don't want them to hear, primarily hear, don't do that, get out of my way, get out of my face, go away. No. I want them to hear the invitation of a good authority that invites them in. Right? So Jesus is contrasting his, his authority with this oppressive authority. This is the problem with preaching through big passages because we're going to get locked on something and we can't, we got to get through the whole passage. Are you guys good to move on? Okay. <laughs> Sorry, I'm like halfway through my notes. We're going to pick up in verse 22. Uh, I, I know you're going to pick up that we're skipping a section, and I'll give you a reason why, but we're going to be looking at the way Jesus confronts our submitting to lying authority. Right? The main point of what's going on in the passage between 15 and 21 is, pick up verse 9, 19, he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. As Jesus is confronting all these uh, oppressive and uh, counter Jesus authorities, he's not inviting a street fight, right? He's not inviting uh, the provocation that's coming, right? He is a gentle and uh, humble savior 
but still the opposition is coming, right? The opposition will come at him. And so he is addressing it and he's not letting it go by. So the next authority that Jesus picks up on is the submitting to lying authority. So you pick up in verse 22, when a demon oppressed man, look at that word oppressed from our last section. Then a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute uh, was brought to him and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? Just so you know, all the way through the book of, the, of Matthew, every time Jesus does a healing, the, the, the phrase son of David is associated with healing. So there's something about David's kingdom and, the, and their thinking that, that was connected to the healing of our hearts and healing of our bodies and healing of our souls. Right? That's just a, just a freebie for this morning. When the Pharisees heard it, they said, is it not by Beelzebub or Satan that the prince of demons that this man cast out demons? Right, so here's what's going on. Right, so Jesus is healing people and he's making them better and the Pharisees sense the threat. They sense, okay, this is not good. Right, this man, he says, be healed and he's healed and we can't do that. Like we can't, like, we can't stand up to this type of authority. So Jesus is is doing something that they can't do. And their response is then to start lying about who Jesus is. Like, oh, well, you know why he can do that because he's in cahoots with the devil, right? He's cahoots, he's in cahoots with the guy, the, the one that's, uh, sorry, I've just mispronounced that. Cahoots? You got it. I got it? Okay, sorry. <laughs> so he is, it's like saying like, okay, um, all right, so Satan is the one who's oppressed this man, and now I, I'm working with Satan to unoppress this man. Like, that, that's the logic. It doesn't quite make sense. So that's what Jesus goes after, right? He said, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid to waste, and no city or house divided um, against itself will stand. By the way, Jesus said that before Abraham Lincoln, just so you know. Like, this is where it comes from. And if Satan cast out Satan... He is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Right? Jesus' logic is obvious. Right? He's saying, like, look, Satan can't be against Satan. Like, if, his Satan, if, if Satan's motive is to oppress and confine and destroy other people, he's not going to be paying other people off to free them <laughs> from his oppression. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom, your son, who do, by whom do your sons cast them out? So obviously they're their people were doing similar things of exorcisms and freeing people from oppression. And he's like, okay, well, if I'm doing it, then who are your guys doing it by? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if by the Spirit of God I cast out demons in the kingdom of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or, who can, or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man? Then indeed... He may plunder his house. So what Jesus is saying is, look, the point of what I'm doing here is I'm coming in and I'm... Uh, <laughs> sorry, it always happens. Uh, for the sake of the recording, children are crying and screaming. But um, he's saying, look, Satan's, Satan has had domain over the earth and I'm coming in and I'm binding his authority by saying he can't have full authority anymore. Or how can someone, right? So how, who is not with, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not uh, gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the son of man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the spirit, Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, 
either in this age or in the age to come. So here's, here's what's going on. Jesus is basically saying, um, your words uh, reveal your commitments, and your commitments are, ra- are rather than submitting to me, you're lying about who I am. Right? That's what Jesus is saying, right? You're lying about who I am because I'm doing this by the power of God. The kingdom of God has come upon you and healing this man and healing hearts and healing bodies. And you're, the only way that you have to try to maintain your authority is to try to lie about who I am. And Jesus is saying, look, uh, you're either going to lie about who I am or you're going to submit to who I am. And the way you submit to who I am is by submitting to the Holy Spirit, right? The blasphemy against the Holy Spirit that he's talking about at the end, the Holy Spirit is given by God to be the, the foretaste of heaven to come, right? The, the, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, and he effectively renews our souls and then gets us ready for being with God forever in heaven. So to... You can say, everybody's born saying no to Jesus. What Jesus is saying is, there's kind of like this timeline that Jesus is talking about. He's saying, everybody's born with a fist in Jesus' face saying, no, 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 no. I want, I want, I want, I need, I need, I need, me, me, me. That's the, that's the heart of every person ever born. But we will eventually say yes to Jesus. And the way we say yes to Jesus is submitting to the Holy Spirit. Submitting to the Holy Spirit's command to say, this is your King and Savior. And to the extent that we refuse the Holy Spirit's ministry, the Holy Spirit's work in us to to submit to Jesus, we blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And so ultimately what Jesus is saying isn't saying, well, you can be a Christian and then you can blaspheme the Holy Spirit and then you cannot be a Christian. That's not what he's saying here. What he's saying is if your whole life and the totality on your gravestone is uh, 1943 to 2003 and the totality of that is a, is a rejection of Jesus that is blaspheming the Holy Spirit because you're lying about the claim of Christ upon your life. Is that making sense? This is hard stuff. Jesus is saying, you will lie about me or you will submit to me. Right, and by, by the way, just so you know, right, verse 33, let's see, is this our, yeah, verse 33, our hearts reveal who, what our, our mouths reveal our hearts. Either make the tree good and its fruit is good, or make the tree bad and its fruit is bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? Right, this is where we're saying they're, they're submitting to lying authority. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of the good treasures brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil, evil treasures brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your mouth, words, you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. This is, I don't know if you guys know that proverb, you never say anything drunk that you didn't think sober. You ever, ever heard that phrase? This is, a, this is what Jesus is saying, right? You don't say, when you say things, um, there's with like a definitive, this is what I think about things, or you refuse to say something, I believe in Jesus. You're making a statement. You will be held accountable for those words. Jesus is not saying, look, for all your lame jokes, you're going to have to give an account for them before God. Like that's not, like the intention is not to say like all those lame jokes you laugh about at the dinner table or the dad jokes you tell. Like that's not what he's putting his finger on. His finger is on all those declarative statements in the secret parts of your heart or in those conversations with other people about about who Jesus is, you will have to give an account for them. And you won't have the excuse of saying, well, they were just words. I didn't mean it. There's no, I didn't mean it when it comes to who Jesus is. That's, you either submit to him or you deny him. There's this famous quote from C.S. Lewis. I don't know if you guys have ever heard this, where he, he pulls out this dynamic of either, we must either decide that Jesus is a liar, a lunatic, or our Lord. 
He says, I'm trying to here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. He's talking about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing that we must not say. A man who has mere, was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher, right? Just think about what we just looked at in this passage, right? He's, say, he's saying, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, right? Somebody says that on the corner of Valley and Wilson Street. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. You're going to think, I need to call the authorities, right? <laughs> this guy is insane. But Jesus said these things, so we have to reconcile with that. He will either be a lunatic on the level of a man who is a poached egg, says he's a poached egg, or else he'll be the devil of hell. You must, either, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else is a madman or something worse. You cannot shut him up for a fool. You can, split, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange and terrifying and unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Right, and contrast to these claims, oh, Jesus, you're just doing this to show off, or Jesus, you're doing this by some you know, demonic authority. We either will lie about who he is or we'll submit to who he is. We cannot just kind of push him aside as some sort of, he was a good guy. That's what Jesus is confronting here. You must decide for yourself. Will you submit to him as a Lord or call him a liar? We're going to pick up here in verse 38 and finish out these, these authorities that Jesus is confronting. Verse 38, we're, we're looking at submitting to demanding authority. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Right? Imagine the, what they're doing is like, Jesus, you've just done all these healings. You've just said all these profound words. You've just done all these magic things. But we want to see something better right now. Come on, Jesus, on our terms. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they report repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from, from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Right, Jesus is laying out for them, you don't demand or you don't get to set the parameters of who God is and how God lives and how God acts. Right? This, isn't, this isn't God on your terms. Right? This is, but we often demand, God, I won't believe in you until you do, right? Have you ever had that, felt that, thought that, or had somebody say that? I won't believe in God until he fixes my marriage. I won't believe in God until he gives me that job. I won't believe in God until he heals my daughter. I won't believe in God until he gives me the money. I won't believe in God unless he puts a rainbow in the sky and kisses me with, rain, you know, with gladness from the heavens, right? That's until God speaks to me from the sky. Like, that's not what God, that's not how God responds to us. 
And that's what they're doing here, right? They're saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. They're demanding that God lives on their authority, on their time, on their priorities. And God won't do that. Jesus says, you know what? You want a sign? I'll give you a sign. The Son of Man will be killed and sit or be laid down in the ground for three days. That'll be a sign for you. <laughs> what an incredible thing they responded, saying, oh, you guys want a sign? Here, I'll, I'll use your, your opposition against me. Right there, Verse 14, they're already planning to kill him, and he knows it. He's saying, I'm going to use you to accomplish what I want to do. I'm going to use your intentions to destroy me to be the sign and the event that actually saves people, that saves you and saves others. Right? This, is, this is the way God works. Right? He uses our best designs, our best intentions to be a part of his design to save us and deliver us from ourselves. Right? In 1 Corinthians, Paul says this great, he kind of breaks this down for us, right? 1 Corinthians 20, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Remember all these people who are coming against Jesus with their wisdom and their tactics? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, right? That means they couldn't have gone to as many schools as they could possibly have developed and planned and then finally achieved Oh, we understand God perfectly now, right? We couldn't have planned that out. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs. Well, it's just from our passage. And Greeks seek wisdom. Remember the Queen of the South going to Solomon, better wisdom in Jesus? We preach Christ crucified, stumbling blocks to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. See, Jesus is saying, you guys want a strong sign? I'll show you the sign of a savior who will let himself be killed, who will use the design to kill him, to be both the exaltation and the glory and the revealing of who God is. He's a savior and the way in which God saves us from ourselves. Jesus is going to use these, these designs of our hearts to achieve the great glory of saving us from ourselves and from the wrath of God, right? That's what Jesus is saying, right? He's saying, you guys want a sign. I'll give you a sign. How about I use a sign that's going to be both an offense to your intentions and your demands and the satisfaction of your souls, which is what Jesus goes on to say here in this verse uh, 43 chapter 12. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through watery places seeking rest and finds none. And then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of this person is worse than the first. So it will be with this evil generation. You see, it's kind of a weird kind of folksy tale. And what Jesus is kind of laying out is basically you either uh, empty your, you can't empty your heart of yourself and leave nothing there, right? You can't kind of clean up yourself and do all these self-help books and kind of projects on your own design and then think that you'll be better on the back end of it because it just makes more room for other bad stuff to dwell there. 
You either fill your heart with who God is and submit to him, or your heart gets, heart gets filled with all these bad things that you could not even imagine, right? It's, you can be good, but if you're good for your own glory and your own name and your own fame, and you get yourself, you get, you, what you're doing is you're locking yourself within yourself, which is not a submission to who God is and not a submission to Jesus. Because what we do with our hearts is we say, Jesus, my heart is totally filthy and broken and needy. Would you come in and clean shop? That's what Jesus intends, right? So we're going to do, in the time remaining, we're just going to look at this last section here, submitting to gracious authority, right? Because Jesus has spent his time engaging in this chapter, right, with oppressive authority, right, left to ourselves, lying authority, talking about who he is, demanding authority, getting locked in ourselves. Jesus comes with this tone. I, it's just, it, it's out of, it's out of all of our expectations and best dreams and hopes. Because we would say, God, I just, I want, I want you to be nice to me. That might be like the best thing that we could pray for. And Jesus ends this story here in chapter 12 with a different, better invitation to authority than we could have imagined. Verse 46, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. Right? You could imagine Jesus said a bunch of things that are, Jesus, uh, can you come over here? We need to have a little talk, that type of thing. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Right? So you can imagine it's like somebody coming in and being like talking right in his ear. Hey, Jesus, like, Mary's out there and she needs to talk to you. And he says, Who is my mother? Who's my mother? Who are my brothers? Holding his hands out, right? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. The invitation that Jesus is offering to his authority, right? You see, he hasn't used the word father with any of his disciples because he's inviting us into his relationship with the father, right? He's saying, when you submit to me, you have a direct relational connection with the father. There's no cousins in the family of God, right? There's no stepsons in the family of God. There are only sons and daughters of the living God directly in relationship with him through Jesus, right? He is our bigger, better safer brother than we could ever have imagined or hoped for. And he is the one who said, no, 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 come. You want, my, you want a real good authority? With my father. My father, who we looked at last time, generous and gracious and forgiving and merciful. Right? You want, you want good authority in your life? Right? You, you, you could be left to yourself and you could be left to the oppressive dynamics of what you think you want and you could be left to the lying dynamics of what you're trying to control in your life. You could be left to the demanding of your heart or, or you can come and be, be near my father, the son and daughter of the living God. Right? His invitation is tender and compassionate, right? When we talk about authority, is this going to be an abrasive authority? Remember, this is why we picked, skipped over verses 15 to 8, 21. Jesus, aware, and drew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all. He healed them. I, do you want to be, do you want help? Jesus, 
He doesn't promise he's going to physical heal you, but he promises his tenderness for you and order them not to make him known, right? Because he wasn't going to be, he wasn't, his popularity wasn't going to be on their terms. It's going to be on his terms. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory and in his name the Gentiles will hope. You see, there's a, there's a book called The Bruised Reed by a man named Richard Sibbs. And one of the most important lines out of that book is, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. This Savior comes to graciously invite us into his authority, and he's not there to try to punch you or to staffle you or to smother you out. His intention, it, you get the image of a, a broken wick like if you're, or a broken reed. You ever, ever like picked up like, a, like in a field and you have like this long, you know, thing of wheat or, you know, grass, and it's kind of like broken. Just like, oh. Even that type of tenderness is how Jesus engages you. Yes, we're broken, right? That's what the verse is saying. You are absolutely broken. And Jesus picks you up in his hand and he says, you want, to, you want good authority? You want, you want to be a part of a family that doesn't smother you out? I'll even treat you like this little piece of grass from a yard clipping. I'm not, going to break, I'm not going to break you up, right? His intention is to invite us into the Father's house. And he says, I forgive you at, the, at my own cost, right? I forgive you of all those broken, sinful things in your hearts, in your lives. I forgive all of those things because they have to be given an account for. And I'll do it with this, remember he talked about the sign of Jonah? I'll do it at my own cost. I will bring you in so that you can flourish and find happiness, right? This, this question, remember we talked about, can, is this authority good for me? Right? Can we put that slide up? Is this authority good for me? Yes, right? Submitting to Jesus' gracious authority, right? It causes us to flourish and to have hope and to have healing in our lives. Not that we have all the things that we want answered, not that we have all the questions resolved, but we have a Savior who brings us into the Father's house and says, you get, the, you get all of this for your good. So what is, how does Jesus end this? Forever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. What does that mean, do the will of the Father in heaven? Well, you can look back, verse, chapter 12, what we just went and looked at. What's his command in verse 28? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Right, the Father's will is for you who are broken and needy to come to Jesus, to say, Jesus, I need you. That's not the type of like demanding authority that we often think about with God, right? Or you think about like chapter five, verses one through 11, where Jesus lays out the Beatitudes, right? What, is it, what does it look like to live in God's kingdom, right? To have a broken and contrite heart, to come to God to yearn for his goodness, to, to long for his designs in your life and the lives of those people around you, right? That, or verse, verse 12 of the chapter we just looked at, right? I desire mercy and not sacrifice. The, the Father's kingdom, the Father's heart 
is to desire mercy for you and the people around us rather than justice and sacrifice. We do want justice and we do want sacrifice. But the priority is on mercy. And even in the very verse of what we just looked at, right? To love God's people. To love his family. <laughs> that's, the, that's, that's what submitting to this good authority, this gracious authority is like. Because it says, okay, God, I don't bring anything to the table and all my designs are just going to be horrible <laughs> for me and for other people. And Jesus says, I know. I want you to submit to my good authority, my gracious authority. Because in my authority, you flourish. Not because of you and what you deserve, but because of who Jesus is and what he desires for you. That's what we're seeing in chapter 12. That we are invited into and can submit to Jesus' gracious authority. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would make our hearts submit to this gracious and good authority, that we would desire to live in him and flourish in living in him. So, Father, would you answer our prayers now that we would submit to Jesus and find our hope and confidence in who he is and what he's done for us and not submit to our own authorities and all the crazy and random designs that we have that are oppressive and lying and demanding the Father, that we would submit to Jesus' gracious authority. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.